When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Happy Wednesday, happy hump day. Awesome show planned for you today. Uh, We're going to have some Tennessee Harmony on the back end of this show. Rob McCoy from TPUSA Faith, Charlie Kirk's organization, uh, is going to join us for an interview. If you remember last week during Tennessee Harmony, we played a soundbite clip from him uh, talking about the rock uh, where Jesus, and he alleges or claims or says, contends that uh, the rock is actually the public square. You heard from Virgil and Anthony last week. This week we'll hear from uh, Rob McCoy himself and let him elaborate on his position. And we'll bring Dave Shannon on Chocolate Knox to get his take on what Rob McCoy uh, thinks Christians should be doing and where the church and what The Rock uh, really is. Uh, So it should be a fascinating discussion on the back end of the show. The front end of the show, uh, I've got TJ Moe on deck, uh, but the front end of the show is going to be a bit more freestyle rap. Uh, That's an unscripted rap. I have some things Uh, related to what we talked about yesterday and just what's been going on this week that I want to unpack and share with you all. And I don't know how long it's going to take. Might take me three minutes. Might take me 30. I'm not sure. I just know there's some things I want to say and I'm just going to let the conversation or what I say take me wherever it takes me. And hopefully we'll get to T.J. Moe at some point because I do want to talk about this fascinating story uh, about fascinating and potentially sad story about the submarine or the submersible vehicle or whatever uh, that's been lost uh, 900 miles, I think, from Cape Cod. Uh, There's a desperate attempt to save these people. Uh, I think I want to talk about it. I think I have some interesting things to say about that. But I want to begin here. Uh, When I woke up this morning, I found out that uh, Reclaim the Rainbow, the song that uh, Bryson Gray, Shamika Michelle, and Jimmy Levy put together uh, for Fearless and for Pride Month, had been knocked out of the number one spot on the iTunes rap chart. Not a big deal, but when I found out what knocked it out of the charts, I was, I, I, it was a kick in the stomach. It, it was a kick in the groins. Uh, Pound Town 2, Nicki Minaj has jumped on uh, a remix version of Pound Town, the song that I played you earlier this week 
from the rapper, the local rapper, or whatever, the rapper, Sexy Red. It's as profane and filthy and degenerate and, and unsophisticated of a song that I've ever heard. Uh, I read to you, I think, on Monday some of the lyrics. We, we showed video of her performing it at a concert. Lyrics, my coochie pink, my booty hole brown. I mean, it's just trash and filth. And so I wake up this morning, I'm like, that's what has knocked Reclaim the Rainbow out of the number one spot on the iTunes chart. And, and it's not a personal ego thing that had me upset. It's, it's a, like, my God, we have really fallen this far, and when I say we, I'm talking about American culture. That something like this that requires no talent and is this filthy would be more marketable, more preferable, more in demand than an excellent song. Whether you agree with the message or not, it's an excellent song. Jimmy Levy is a beautiful singer. Shamika Michelle and Bryson Gray's raps are complex and clever and have a clear, distinct message. All of this, this song, Reclaim the Rainbow, executed to perfection. And Pound Town 2, a song about sexual depravity, a song, and I thought WAP was a really bad song and a really depraved and debaucherous song. Poundtown 2 makes WAP sound PG-13. And, and so it saddened me this morning, like it, it, it kinda, cause I gotta be honest, I've been feeling good all Pride Month and just in recent weeks and like, hey man, we're, we're taking some scalps in the culture war. We're pushing back. There's momentum on our side. And then I wake up and I go, Pound Town 2. Wow. That's better than Reclaim the Rainbow. And that's what young people and kids want to hear. And that's what's dominating the music charts. Now, since this morning, Reclaim has reemerged back on top of the hip hop charts and all that, and, and so that is good. But, but I, I, I will say this, and Bryson has been tweeting about this, and Shamika Michelle and Jimmy Livy have been tweeting and talking about this. They've been disappointed with the lack of support from alleged media that should be friendly to this type of music, and why aren't people talking about this song and the success it's having over iTunes Brandon, I mean, Bryson has pointed out that some of his other work, Let's Go Brandon, things that are more political, uh, have received more support from conservative media outlets than Reclaim the Rainbow. And he's been disappointed by that. I have a little bit of disappointment by that, but it doesn't surprise me. God and Jesus Christ are really, really tough topics for corporate media and even non-corporate media to address. YouTube, the algorithms, Twitter, and Twitter is much better than what it used to be, but people have been trained and, and made aware. 
Stay away from God if you want the algorithms to be friendly towards you. And so they stay away from God. If you look what happened with Tucker Carlson at Fox News and, and how Fox News and their leadership feel about conversations that center God and a biblical worldview too much, that's part of the reason why Tucker Carlson is no longer at Fox News. The whole system has been rigged to make us not talk, train us, program us not to talk about God, not to talk about Jesus Christ. So I get it. There's a fear and it cuts across all political lines. But that was the first thing that kicked me in the groins this morning. The other thing that was kicking me in the groins all night as I slept and all morning and afternoon as I thought was a conversation we had yesterday that started on this show about Juneteenth and then continued on a Twitter spaces we hosted last night that started at 7.30 p.m. Central Time and went to about 9.40 p.m. Uh, Central Time last night. We had a Twitter Spaces conversation that included a wide range of people from myself and Delano to Shamika to Virgil to Dave Shannon to guys from outside our normal crew, Jeff Charles, Adam Coleman, Wilfred Riley, and inviting in people, just regular listeners or people that chimed in and jumped in. That conversation uh, kept me in my, in my head, replaying in my head all night, and, and I wanna have some final thoughts, and this is where I hope I have some discipline here and can uh, unpack what I think about Juneteenth and have some final thoughts about that until I guess next year or until the next time the uh, topic is appropriate. I, I've given this a lot of thought and, and there is a discomfort that many people have in talking about reality. And it's, it's, we love to have public debates that are distanced from reality. We like hypothetical, theoretical, we like talking about things the way that we wish they were. And as I replayed a lot of our conversation last night, particularly on the Twitter spaces, and even some of the conversation we had on the show yesterday, it reinforces my belief that social media platforms uh, distort and push people away from dealing in reality. I've said it all the time that social media is just a stage and to, they're just platforms. Platforms hold stages. People perform on stages. And, and that's what baits people into distancing themselves from reality and holding a hypothetical discussion that works well in a debate on a college campus. It, it, it distracts us and takes us and moves us away from talking about the real issues in a real way because we're all thinking about how can I frame an argument to win a debate 
rather than how can I expose more truth? And so where we ended up landing, or where I ended up landing, I don't, I don't got a mouse in my pocket, where I ended up landing on Juneteenth is, is this, and I, I said it a little bit yesterday on the show, I certainly said it yesterday on the Twitter Spaces deal, there's this fake world that many of us have created where the Juneteenth holiday has very little to do with George Floyd or should that, that George Floyd being connected to Juneteenth should not change the way anyone perceives and sees Juneteenth. Everyone should just rise above that. Rise above the fact that Juneteenth became a national holiday because of George Floyd. There's, there's this disconnect from reality about how we got here or we've decided it's irrelevant how we got here, how we got to Juneteenth being a national holiday. You, 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 in my view, you can't disconnect it. And so a lot of this, because much of the debate, black people are somewhat boxed in. I think many of them are reluctant to say what they think uh, about Juneteenth that 90% of us uh, never celebrated it before. 80% of us to this day don't even know what it's about. Uh, and, and that it's not a serious holiday. People can't say that because, oh my God, if you say that, you're not really black and you're not supporting the black thing. And again, this is all the pushing away from reality. The reality is the overwhelming majority of black people never celebrated Juneteenth before two years ago. The overwhelming majority of black people don't know what Juneteenth is about even to this day. Now, take set us to the side and just the rest of America, from white America to Latino America to Asian America to whatever group you're in, in America. 95% of them had never heard of Juneteenth, particularly if they didn't live outside of Texas. And their introduction to Juneteenth was the George Floyd riots, chaos, murder, conviction, trial, whatever. It's all connected to George Floyd. And people sat at home watched on their televisions as riots, looting, murder, chaos. People said reprehensible, racially idolatrous things on TV on a nonstop basis based off of the tragic events around George Floyd. George Floyd was presented to the world from corporate media, from social media, from the way many black and white people talked, George Floyd represents how America feels about black people. George Floyd and Derek Chauvin represent the relationship 
between black and white people in America. George Floyd and Derek Chauvin's, their interaction speaks so much more about America than the hundreds of thousands of white people who died in the Civil War fighting for our freedom. No, 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 no. Those people don't matter. The white people that died alongside and protested alongside black people in the 50s and 60s, they don't matter. The whole media infrastructure told the world that Derek Chauvin and George Floyd represent the relationship between white people and black people in America. That was the messaging. That's the reality. Did everybody do that? No. But was there a steady drumbeat of that from corporate media and social media and every other place? Yes. And so on the backs of that messaging, white people, Asian people, Latino people, rational black people, non-racially idolatrous black people are like, really? Derek Chauvin? Now, I live next door to or have gone to work with or have gone to school with or have dated or have socialized with or have played football and basketball with all these other white people. And I've never had the engagement with them that Derek Chauvin had with George Floyd. And, and, and I've engaged with law enforcement many, many times and never had the struggle, the, the type of engagement that Derek Chauvin and George Floyd had. But their relationship, that, those eight to 10 minutes, summarize black people and white people's relationship in America. And white people are filthy and racist and America is filthy and racist. And on the backs of that messaging, here comes the political opportunist that includes Donald Trump. Donald Trump was talking about, he was gonna make Juneteenth a federal holiday. That was pandering. And then Joe Biden and the left took it to an even higher level. They made it a federal holiday. Nancy Pelosi and all the, Chuck Schumer, these all got put on kente cloths and took a knee and thanked George Floyd for dying. That was Nancy Pelosi. And so on the backs of that, they usher in the Juneteenth national holiday and, and we're supposed to have a conversation where, man, I'm just surprised white people aren't on board with Juneteenth. I'm, I'm, I'm totally shocked. I can't believe that there are white people bothered by the fact that Juneteenth is now a national holiday. I'm, you could knock me over with a feather. I'm just so shocked that months of constant messaging that Derek Chauvin and proves that white people are evil and the whole system is against us and, and George Floyd is a saint and a martyr and should be worshiped and we should build statues and we should loot and riot and we should, anybody that's got a problem with the looting and rioting is a racist. 
That messaging is how we usher in the Juneteenth holiday. And I'm supposed to be shocked that white people don't want to get on board with it. And that white people think, hey, what are we doing here? A new National Independence Day? A new holiday about an event that went on in Texas that I'd never heard about until George Floyd? And so having public discussions about reality and truth is very, very, very difficult. I get it. You can sacrifice your entire social circle by publicly discussing the real truth. And that, that's whether you're black or white. People will run away from you if you insist on talking about reality. They want you to move into the fantasy world, the make-believe world, the more comfortable world of lies and distortions. I get the pressure. I'm sympathetic to the people that can't handle the pressure. But we are living in a time where the truth is our only salvation, where reality is the only thing that's going to save us. Our kids are buying up a song called Pound Town that is retarded, sexually depraved. Thousands of kids are singing these lyrics at concerts. We have Juneteenth celebrations going on. Nothing but gunplay, nothing but violence amongst the kids at Juneteenth celebrations. Nothing but is a strong word, but You've seen the videos. Juneteenth, we want white people to jump on board with Juneteenth and understand all the history and understand it's about liberty and it's about freedom and who would be against that? Our own kids, our own young people have no idea what Juneteenth is about. It's just an excuse to twerk and drink and party and usher in madness and chaos. But white people are some special group of people who can look at months of rioting on TV, months of everything on TV and on social media demonizing them over the behavior of Derek Chauvin. One, one white guy. Let's say it's 10 white guys that, oh, they speak for everybody. But anytime a black person is captured on video doing something reprehensible, no, that says nothing about black people. You're racist if you think that. White people, and particularly Christian white people, who are desiring to live in truth, we're supposed to be mad at them because they don't want to get in on board with a holiday that was brought to us by the George Floyd insanity and by the racial idolatry 
that was promoted through the George Floyd insanity. I, I, I'm t- last night, I am glad I participated in the conversation. I'm glad I hosted the conversation. I'll do it again. But I am going to ask everybody. It's not everybody's going to like me because I'm going to insist that we deal and talk about truth and reality. This show is called Fearless for a Reason. Last night was a Twitter spaces. It wasn't this show. But I really don't want to be anywhere where we remove ourselves from reality so that we can have some hypothetical conversation and make political points. We're in too serious of a time, way too serious of a time, to be wasting our time having hypothetical conversations, theoretical conversations that are removed from truth. It's, it's, it's like, it's, I won't participate in a debate about whether men can get pregnant. It's a waste of time. Pretending like the Juneteenth holiday as a national holiday. I'm not talking about the people in Texas who justifiably for more than 100 years have celebrated Juneteenth. I'm talking about the national holiday that was brought to us by the George Floyd racial idolatry. We have better things to do than to sit around and understand. I don't still understand why white people don't get this. It's crystal clear and obvious why they don't get it. This is insanity. This is, and it's just, when the government is listing this as National Independence Day, and then they turn around and say, July the 4th is National Independence Day, and we gotta pretend why people aren't jumping on board with this? Let's not do that. This, (laughs) there was a lady that came on last night and made a comment about what type of history, I really don't think she was trying to be critical. I think she was trying to be inspirational. But she was talking about what kind of historic change uh, were any of us on the call trying to make? And, 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 and I jumped in, I was like, I, I get her point. It sounds good, but I'm just like, change? I mean, who, who said that was our mission? Who, who told us that? I get the whole Barack Obama message, change we can believe in and blah, and he's made that popular, but he's brought on an arrogance and a narcissism and promoted among people that everybody thinks is their purpose in life to promote historical change. That's why NFL players have it on the back of their helmets, inspire change. And for two years I've been asking, well, define the change that that you're qualified to make. Tell, Tell me what change you want to make. Because we have interpreted like all change is good change. 
And that's just not true. So I look at a group of people 150, 160 years ago that wanted to change the institution of slavery. Good thing. Do it. Great. Be an abolitionist. Go to war. Sacrifice your life. Make that change happen. I will applaud it. Denying people their freedom, their liberty. Yeah, that's worth dying for. And you know what? Make that change. People paying taxes and not being able to go to schools where they pay taxes on. People being denied service at restaurants and hotels and all that. Yeah, make that change. But to get it made up in your mind in 2023 that, hey, you know what? I got to do what they did 150 years ago. I got to make that kind of change right now, even though those same problems don't exist. And that's why I kept hammering this point about, hey, man, we started, and by me, black Americans, Memorial Day. It was a celebration of the sacrifice of Union soldiers in the pursuit of expanding freedom. We started that. 10,000 black people in Charleston, South Carolina, paraded through the streets in 1865 to honor Union soldiers. That started the Memorial Day tradition. We don't need Juneteenth. It's redundant. It's arrogant. It's narcissistic. It's a group of people that think, well, you know, in order for us, uh, to have accomplished anything in this world, in this lifetime, we must change things. So we must create a national holiday that diminishes Memorial Day and competes with July the 4th. All unnecessary. It's all a disrespect to our ancestors and the sacrifices and the things they put in place for us. I'm not so arrogant that I think everything people in the past did needs to be changed. Why are you that arrogant? And that it's all part of a mindset that said, you know what, the Bible's no good. Yeah, it worked for two, 3,000 years, but now I'm so smart, we're so smart, we don't need the Bible. We don't need God. It's all the same mindset. We got to change things up. Everything they did in the past is no good. When they're throwing it out, everything in the past, just for the sake of change, just, just out of spite. That's how Jesus Christ gets thrown out with the bath water. They want to change it all. And this is the slickness and the cleverness and the wickedness of the whole Obama campaign. Change we can believe in. Convince young people that their mission in life is to change everything and make historic change. The blueprint for what we all should be doing has been laid out in the Bible for thousands of years. And those of us that have been disobedient to that blueprint, 
We're going to pay a price for it, and we are paying a price for it. This chaos is on us. But all you got to do, this, I'm listening to this woman talk about oh, what historic change. I was like, lady, I'm just trying to eat less than 2,000 calories today and work out. I just want to be less fat. And some of you with kids just need to, you know what? I just need to be a better daddy or mama today. And if you got a wife, I just need to serve her the way Jesus served the church. And if you're a wife, I need to submit to my husband. And my husband needs to submit to God. Start there. You know, if, if we all did that, the simple things that we can do, Whitlock, eat less than 2,000 calories a day and work out. Those of you that are married, be better spouses to each other. Raise your kids in fear and admonition of the Lord. Start there and watch how the world changes. But when you say, oh, let me cook up a plan to do historic change. That's how we have young people thinking, you know what? Just change the world and let two men get married and adopt kids. Yeah, that'll fix it. That's change. And that's the kind of ignorance we've been promoting because we've all bought into, oh, everything in the past. This biblical foundation, it all must be uprooted and there must be change. And yeah, I know black people started Memorial Day, but you know what, my general, we need to start Juneteenth. We just need to change stuff. Because everything in the past is no good. And we got to put our stamp on it because we're the smartest people on the planet. We're the dumbest people in the history of the planet. And I say that sincerely. Have to be the dumbest people in the history of the planet. Nowhere in the history of the planet that I'm aware of, show me in a history book, were they debating whether men could get pregnant. We're retarded. And then we're, oh, <laughs> you two guys. God and the Bible created marriage between man and a woman. But let's change that up. And if two women want to get married, let's do it. And if two men want to get married, let's do it. And let's put them in a hospital bed, laying there with babies like they just delivered babies. And you know what? If an eight-year-old kid wants to cut her breast off or have his penis cut off, let's do it. That's change. That's historic change. Do the simple things. Change yourself for the better. If you need to drop 50 pounds, start today. If you need to drink less alcohol, start today. If you need to wash your rear end, do it now. Simple, tiny little things. Quit trying to make history and just do the simple things 
And watch what happens. You'll look up and there will be all kinds of historic change that follows. The historic change we need right now is to get back right with God. We've screwed this entire thing up. There's a song called Pound Town with a little retarded woman with tats all over herself. Talking about she wants her coochie stretched and people are buying this song and acting like it's good music. We have to deal with reality of just how far we've come and how far we've moved away from God. The, 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 the godding up, the martyring, the making George Floyd and uh, George Floyd an idol. Ushering in a divisive holiday. On the backs of George Floyd and then pretending like anybody that has a problem with it. Oh, that's a problem with them. Don't they understand what Juneteenth is about? It's about liberty. No, man, not in reality. Maybe it was in 1866 when they started it. But now the way we just unpacked it, the way we just shoved it down America's throat. Ain't got nothing to do with freedom and liberty. Has everything to do with rubbing it in people's faces. And being divisive. And being racially idolatrous. That's reality. (laughs) There, I had one last, this whole political and just... when they bait you into the trap of interpreting the world and constantly discussing the world in political terms. And, and I try to avoid it. And I know the blaze is a platform that is based somewhat in politics. And, and, and we talk about politics on this show, but I I promise you what we're trying to do is interpret the world through a biblical lens. And, and because every other lens distorts and every other lens baits you into believing, well, there's two sides to every issue. There's not two sides to every issue. There, there, to political issues, perhaps there are. But there's really only one side, and that's the biblical side. If God made a ruling on it, it's over. It's decided. And so, but we we fall into this trap of like, instead of dealing with the truth, let's interpret it, talk about it, have a discussion about it in political terms. Well, conservatives think this and liberals think that. And and I know I fall into this trap from time to time. I know I'm being a bit hypocritical here. But mostly what I'm targeting every day is the truth. And I don't care 
who the truth makes look good or who the truth makes look bad. I know the truth will set us all free and it will heal us and it will bring us together if we're all willing to go there. The, the, the political discussions and all, I just don't have a great deal of interest in and, and, and pointing out the political hypocrisy. I don't have a great deal. Politics is built on hypocrisy. You can't have one without the other. So just wanted to get that off my chest. I'm, I'm, I want to talk about uh, our very good friends, our purpose here at Fearless Preborn. Uh, Preborn obviously is part of our worldview here at Fearless that life begins at conception, inside the womb. I know this, I believe this, because the actions we take when a child is inside the womb impacts the child's life outside the womb. Countless studies, hey, read to that baby while he or she is in the womb, and his IQ or her IQ will elevate. If that's true, and it is, how can people say life doesn't begin until birth? If, if you can take actions, if you can feed that baby certain things while it's in the womb and it'll be healthier, if you can talk and engage, rub the woman's stomach, keep that woman in a very uh, anxiety-free, loving space, it's all going to help the baby post-delivery, if all that's factual, life begins inside the womb. This is a fact. This isn't even up for debate. The Bible already stated, I'm just giving you, you know, some science to, to back up what the Bible already told you. Preborn realizes this, knows this, uh, provides ultrasounds to expectant mothers. Uh, you give a woman that's considering abortion, you show her an ultrasound, you let her listen to that baby's heartbeat, you show her an image. She then makes a different choice and she chooses life. That's when preborn really steps in and starts providing her what she needs uh, during that baby's first two years of life outside the womb. It's preborn is awesome. Dan Steiner has been on the show. I brought him on the show just so one, I would feel comfortable, you would feel comfortable knowing when we send our money to preborn. It pays for ultrasounds, it helps that woman, it doesn't go to some mid-level executive or some high-end executive to give them a six or seven-figure salary, it goes to help expectant mothers. Dan Steiner, preborn are awesome. An ultrasound costs just $28, five ultrasounds, $140, two ways to give, pound 250, say the keyword baby, or do it the Jason Whitlock way, the way I prefer, preborn.com slash Jason. Hey, $5, $10, $5,000, million, whatever it is, it all goes to help support life in the womb. It saves babies' lives. We save, preborn saved like 250,000 babies' lives in, in preborn's existence. We're gonna save another 50,000 this year. Can't do it without you. Pound 250, keyword baby. All gifts are tax deductible. Consider a corporate donation or appreciated stock. 
You can use your write-offs to save precious babies' lives. You will never regret saving a defenseless baby's life. Go to preborn.com slash Jason right now. PJ Mo. It's my obligation to hate discrimination, raising up your hands for freedom. All right, welcome back. Uh, TJ, I'm sorry. I told you that would take five minutes. It took 40. (laughs) (laughs) I apologize. Hey, I I wanted to talk about, or if you could help me talk about um, the submarine deal that's lost at sea. Everybody is fascinated by it over social media. I don't think people know whether to laugh. We should be praying. Uh, something about it feels humorous, but other, it's not humorous. Five lives are at stake. The, the, I think the guy's name is Stockton, is the CEO. He's on uh, the submersible deal that, you know, they go down and look at the Titanic wreckage. Costs like $250,000 to go on this trip. There's some rich people, the people, all everybody on this trip is a wealthy person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 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 there are people, again, laughing and halfway rooting for this disaster to happen. The, the, the CEO put out some statement earlier, long before this happened, about, made comments about why he didn't, he didn't want to hire submarinists. There were 50-year-old white guys because they weren't inspirational. I read a story where he fired some 50-year-old-ish white guy that had written a report in 2018, I believe, about the lack of safety issues and concerns he had. That guy was fired. It's, I, I, I read this story is complicated and it's, it's fascinating, but part of it, I, and who knows what happened here, why it disconnected and is lost or whatever, but when I sit there and think about the CEO talking about, hey, you know, I want my hires to be inspirational. And he's a 60-year-old white guy saying he doesn't want to hire 50-year-old white guys because they're not inspirational. He's bought into the diversity, equity, inclusion, the ESG, and, and all of that. And when I think about submerging myself uh, 10,000 feet, 13,000 feet below the ocean or <laughs> the depth of the I just want the most qualified. I don't care what color they are. If Martians are the best, that's what I want. So I don't know, your thoughts on this topic that is dominating a lot of conversation over social media and in corporate media. Yeah, it's everywhere. It's always interesting what America latches on to. Remember the, uh, there was an airliner that disappeared that we talked about for weeks. I can't remember which one that was that, um, the girl, Gabby, who was murdered by her fiance, and it just grabs America. I don't know how to make sense of all that. You know, the the weird thing about this one is just how irresponsible it seems. And, you know, there's been a lot of discussion on Twitter about, um, as you pointed out, some, some people are making fun of it. Some people are laughing at them. Everybody's got their own little agenda. It's all five white guys can't do anything without a woman and all of that. But it's like th- there was a guy in the New York Post 
who wrote an article. He actually did this back in 2021. And he's like, now we had, I, I went down there, but the first thing that happened was we had to abandon the first ship for some reason or another. And then the second one, the electrical failed. And there, he's like, that's what happened, I'm sure. And it was an hour and 45 minutes into the, um, into this mission or voyage and they lost contact. Well, the likelihood of the electrical failing after it's already failed in the past at some point seems kind of high. And then what do you do? Because, you know, it's like, I, I was reading a, I was re it was a, this is all secondhand, whatever, but it's somebody on Twitter who had connections to the Navy and they're like, guys, this, this thing's already over. I mean, it's a, it's a nice story for us to try to save them, but the Coast Guard doesn't save submarines or submergents, whatever you'd call these. And the Navy can't go down that deep. Navy goes to like 10,000 feet. These people are almost 13,000. So they're not even right now. They have a plane flying over the top, trying to figure out and, and get some of the, the, there was a report early this morning that said, you know, you can hear some every 30 minutes or so there's some pounding. So they think they might still be alive because it's on that schedule. Um, and then now they've sent down an unmanned craft of some sort trying to find them with no luck. I mean, you know, it's 39 degrees at the bottom of the ocean. The, the hypothermia is a serious threat down there. They're, they're all sitting Indian style. If you've seen this ship, they're all sitting Indian style. It's the, the whole thing's strange. What, what seems crazy to me is I get it. Rich people just like, you know, once, once you've sort of mastered your, um, profession, whatever that is, and you got a ton of money that this, one of these guys, I think the British guy went with Jeff Bezos to space. So now he's just into the world of, I can afford to do these crazy things. So I do them. But what's crazy is when you listen to a guy that this CEO, 61 year old CEO say, guys, we don't really value, uh, anybody's qualifications here. We, we value color and being on the right side of history and then still taking that suicide mission that there's some serious stupidity involved in that. One, one thing I was thinking about, cause I, I actually think this ties in all of this ties into some of your unscripted monologue there about there are so many people you, you always call it being on people want to be on the right side of history and they want to change things and they want to be the one you look back at it. Uh, I, I would phrase it differently and say, everybody is so narcissistic because of social media and so obsessed with legacy that they can't see straight. And I don't believe in legacy. And I, I think that's scriptural. If you, if you read Ecclesiastes, if you've ever gone through that, um, Solomon is writing near the end of his life talking about, you know, all the dumb mistakes made. And he was the wisest man to ever live. And Ecclesiastes 11, one says, no one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those to follow them. So you, I, I've thought about this a lot because people are so obsessed with this. And I'm like, I don't have a legacy. I won't. The, I, I was a decent football player. I was a, you know, maybe I'll be a decent businessman. But it's no one, I, you know, I can't tell you one thing about my great-grandfather. Not one. Even in my own family, I won't be remembered. I already know that. So th this is what Solomon's trying to tell us. He goes through, if you want to get depressed, <laughs> read Ecclesiastes. He talks about how everything is meaningless. That, that is the title of most of the chapters of Ecclesiastes. Everything is meaningless. He goes and he says, wisdom is meaningless. 
He says, understanding is meaningless. You go through it all. And in the end, he basically says, honor God and keep his commandments. That's the duty of man. And so we're here on this earth for such a tiny fraction of a second compared to the grand scheme of everything. And we're worried about being on the right side of history, right? And you always say, try being on the right side of God. So all of these these guys who are into this ESG stuff and all the CRT, it's, just, it's like, just take five seconds, tell the truth and try to set your family up on the right path. Because I, I don't know my great grandfather, but I know he's had an impact on my life because of the values he instilled in my grandfather who instilled them in my father, who I now have and will instill in my kids. So you can pass it down, but I don't know anything about him. And so that that's all we got. And I think all of this sort of runs together. These people are obsessed with legacy and it's nonsense. I used to be one of those people, and, and I regret it. I do believe in legacy, though, because I, I do believe you are your great-grandfather's legacy, and your father is, and, and that, again, speaks to the importance of family and starting a family and, and you know, raising and developing that family properly. I do believe that is man and woman's true legacy. This other stuff, though, is completely irrelevant. I was obsessed for a solid 25 years with being the greatest sports writer of my time. And that's what drove me. And that was the most important thing to me. And mm -hmm. what a tiny, small accomplishment that would have been or is. You know, I look around and go, these clowns I was competing against, I was competing to be the tallest midget. I mean, that's literally, like, you're the tallest midget. I mean, because that's, that's, and so it was just, it was a fruitless, meaningless pursuit that I poured all of my energy and life into at the expense of some other things that were far more important. And so, yeah, I, I do think, that last night on that Twitter space when, you know, a woman's talking about, you know, what history are you making? And, and then it made me think of, and again, I really don't think the woman was trying to be condescending or anything like that. I think she was trying to be inspirational. But, but I, it made me think of, what's her name, John Pierre or Corrine John Pierre yeah. and how she's calling herself a historical figure. And, and it, it, that is the mindset of, of people that I'm going to do something, I'm going to accomplish something here, and people are going to talk about me a uh, hundred years later, and like, so what? You won't be there to hear it, <laughs> and it's really rather meaningless. Yeah, there's, uh, where this sort of hit me is I tried to think back, because I'm like, we have our founding fathers, who I have a lot of respect for. I love reading about American history what they had to overcome to be here, the courage they had, the faith that they embraced. It's important. And then I'm like, all right, so humans been around 6,000 years, written history, whatever. And it's like, okay, so let's take a year, any random century. Can you name me one person from the 1100s? From the 700s? From the 200s? I can't, I just, I can't. And it's, I think I read more than most. So you think about that. How many, how many billions of people have been on the earth over time? We got 8 billion right now. 
And people die every day and people are newborn. So what are we at? A hundred billion over time as it's grown? Two hundred billion? I don't know. But like, who is your legacy even for? And as you always point out, who cares about the history books? Because the winner gets to write them. So if somebody disagrees with your values, they just burn the old books anyway and say, this guy was a real jerk. Here's why. So I, I just don't, I, I do agree with you. I would, if that's how you would define legacy, the, the reason I define legacy different is because I think people have selfish ambitions in their legacy. And so if I can't name you, is it your legacy? And so in your definition, it would be your kids are your legacy. And it could, you know, but, but again, say you have, it may not even be your name because the Bible talks about, you know, how, you know, I think even Solomon says a good name is more valuable than expensive perfume, I think is how they, he phrases it, um, which is great. But like, okay, let's say you just have daughters. Your name's gone. Now what? In America, it just keeps going. So you may not even have your name. There may be nothing about me that exists in a hundred years or 500 years. We may not even be on this continent. And all I'm trying to do is push them in a straight line. So if that's my legacy, great. But I don't think that's how legacy is discussed in America today. I think it's, I was the richest guy and I did all this cool stuff and I invented this and people are going to remember me forever. And I got news for you. No, they are not. And it just won't matter. It's like all them dead guys, I, I, you know, all the guys, unless he says Grant's got a statue somewhere, I bet you he'd prefer to be alive than to have that statue. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what can I point out? You didn't, you didn't say this in your monologue, but one, your best point yesterday when you were talking about that lady who said, what are we doing today? And you said, focus on yourself. And I think Jeff jumped in and was like, no, nah, we got to focus on government. Your best point of the night was our government's just a reflection of us. Who do you think voted these people in? Who do you think supports these policies? These people don't have real values. All they do is put in place what they think we want, or it's like they put their finger up in the air and say, should we have gay marriage? It seems like a lot of people are going towards that. All right, let's do it. That's all these politicians are. So it's just a reflection of us. If we all changed ourselves enough to actually embrace biblical values again, our politicians would change and then our politics would change. That I thought was your best point of the night. Yeah. Well, if we changed pound town, no one would buy pound town. They would be embarrassed. <laughs> and that, that woman's mother would pull her off stage and give her a spanking and not let her leave the house. Hopefully uh, her dad. <laughs> but, yeah, her da yeah. dad, yeah, somebody. Uh, yeah, hopefully yeah. she's got a dad. Thank you, TJ. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I want to get to Rob McCoy and Tennessee Thomas. All right, welcome back. Time for a little Tennessee harmony. We're going to go out to Arizona and bring in senior pastor of Godspeed Calvary Chapel of Thousand Oaks, co-chair of Turning Point USA Faith, Rob McCoy. Rob, uh, we found a video that he uh, did speaking somewhere. We found it very interesting. Had a conversation about it last week. Rob, normally I'm joined for this segment by uh, Pastor Anthony Walker. He's sure. at my side for this segment, but he's out of town this week. And so, Rob, I'm going to throw a little curveball at you. 
I always begin this segment with a prayer from a minister. And so I would like for you to uh, bless this conversation before we have it. Let's do it. Lord, thank you for Jason and thank you, God, for the, the reality that unless you build the temple, we labor in vain. And so, God, we ask you to go before us and that the conversation would glorify you, honor you and lift up and bless the listeners and the viewers. And I ask all this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, Rob, I want to play the clip uh, that sparked a lot of conversation on our show last week. When I first saw it, it was like, I was like, wow. I got to meet this guy. I want to hear him talk about this. This is a point of view and a perspective I had not heard before. So let's play the clip, remind the audience. The greatest beacon of liberty is the church. Yes. The church abdicated its responsibility in the public square 50 years ago. Most pastors think politics is dirty, but politics is the highest form of community because it combines morality with sociability. We have to get along. And, and I, I, I think about this idea that Jesus said to his disciples uh, at the headwaters of the Jordan in Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16. He said, who do men say that I am? And they go, some say you're John the Baptist, others say you're Jeremiah. He says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And he says, and upon this rock, I will build my, and everyone says church, but that's not the word. That didn't come to hundreds of years later. The very first English-speaking Bible that Tyndale translated from the original language, he wrote assembly, and for that one word, he was hung and his remains were burned because the king didn't want anyone uh, contending for his authority. The word was a secular word. Jesus didn't use uh, a religious term. He didn't say synagogue or temple. He said ecclesia or ecclesia, and Aristotle defined that hundreds of years earlier. It means public square, city hall. It's where the citizens would gather to decide the welfare of their community. Wow. So the rest of it, it says, upon this rock, I'll build my public square, my city hall, and the gates of hell, gates and slave will not prevail. So that sparked a lot of conversation, debate, and disagreement on this show. Uh, sure. Pastor Anthony Walker, Virgil Walker, took issue with your comments. I kind of just played the middleman, not an expert on it. But I wanted to give you an opportunity to expound on your interpretation, because to them, I think and I, it's hard, for, difficult for me to represent their complete thoughts. But for them, they, they see it as pushing politics rather than pushing the gospel and Jesus Christ. I, I, I just think they disagreed with your interpretation of how the word ecclesia was used and, and whether God was talking explicitly about the public square and politics. Well, it's real simple to resolve it. Just do the etymology of the word ecclesia or ecclesia and find out where it first exists and where it's first used. And that's where the original meaning comes from. That's why I stated Aristotle. Long before the Catholic Church decided to make this the papal authority of Peter, that upon this rock I will build my church, and that's what they call the Catholic Church, which means universal, um, I would take it that the, the two pastors you speak of, they took offense to the idea that I am, I am putting an emphasis on politics. And um, the, the church has been conditioned in the last 50 years to think politics is dirty. Well, it is dirty because it, 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 it has flawed people contending for, for truth and, and doing their best in a legislative body. 
and and they say, well, but politics is dirty. I, well, I go, the church is dirty. It doesn't mean we don't participate in it. And they say, well, I'm tired of voting for the lesser of two evils. I just do the gospel. Well, unless Jesus Christ is running for office, you'll always be voting for the lesser of two evils. And to say you're just doing the gospel, I'll give you a perfect example, Jason. Um, our church, God Speak Calvary Chapel, um, we're a loose affiliation of churches. I think there at one point was 1,800 of them around the world. And they started in 1968 with Chuck Smith. And you saw the Jesus Revolution movie. That's about him. So... Chuck starts Calvary Chapel because in 1968 in California, Reagan was governor. Um, we had just completed the, the uh, a civil engineering feat of the California aqueduct, bringing the snowfall from the Sierras to the most fertile farmland in the country, which is the San, uh, San Joaquin Valley. And here's what happens in 68. As you know, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. shot. Bobby Kennedy is shot. And, and then all of our young people are, are dying in cities in a country that we didn't know existed and can't pronounce the names of. And we're wondering what that war in Vietnam is all about. And you had the Tet Offensive in 68. And then the, in 69, the following year, you'd have the Kent State shooting. The nation's being torn apart. And so Chuck comes out. And what happened is all these young people checked out of the church because they didn't have answers because the church doesn't do politics. It doesn't speak to the LGBT. It doesn't speak to CRT. It doesn't speak to, it's supposed to speak to every issue. Study to show yourself approved unto God who workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You seek truth in all you do. But the, the, the part I'm getting at is this. When, when the young people were disillusioned with the church, they checked out of it. And, and they, they went into Eastern religions and experimental drug use, and they ended up awash on the shores of California. And that was the hippie movement. And Chuck and Kay looked out there, and they began to minister to them. But they kept politics out of it because the kids had been promised hope and change, and they were burned out. And so at that point in 68, Chuck removes politics, teaches the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And, and one thing to, to point out, in 1968, California had the fifth largest GDP. It, we were the state of the future. Everyone wanted to be here. I was born here in 64. So Chuck stays away from politics, teaches the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Gospel throws the net out, calls for Christ, raise your hand, God bless you. We did the Harvest Crusades, 10,000% growth. And that was conversion growth, not transfer growth. So how did it affect California, the power of the gospel? How did it affect California today in 2023, almost 50 years, more than 50 years later? How has it benefited with that 10,000% growth? The lion's share of those Calvary chapels, California, south of Anais to the Mexican border, there's more Calvary chapels than Dunkin' Donuts. Now, how did it change California? Well, it didn't. We don't have the fifth largest GDP. We're bordering on the sixth. We have the highest gas tax, sales tax, income tax, corporate tax. We lead the nation in debt. You combine California, the next four largest states' debt, it doesn't equal the debt of California. We're the authors of no-fault divorce that Reagan signed in 69, became law in 70, decimated marriage across the country. We're the authors of transgender bathroom bills, and now the most secular, progressive sexual education curriculum on the face of the earth. You can't even speak it. And they shut your church down and they say that the bride of Christ is non-essential. And you tell me I'm too political? They tried to shut the bride of Christ down for a virus that has a 99.7% survival rate. And, and, and I, just, I just can't fathom. If God didn't intend us to be in politics, he would have never have invented marriage. I mean, it, it's, it's how do you get along? 
That's what Aristotle said. It's morality and sociability. And, and, and that's, that's life. That's what we should be doing. But pastors think that if they can get someone to raise their hand, that's the gospel. That gospel's truncated and myopic. The gospel should change culture and drive culture. Unpack your, if God didn't want us in politics, he would have never created marriage. Explain that. Yeah. Well, how do you get along with, I, 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 forgive me, I don't know if you're married or not. I am, there's a ring. Uh, not married. Okay. Well, then it explains why you need me to unpack that, because anyone married understands it. <laughs> and when it, what, <laughs> you, you, have, you have, you know, the Bible says that, that God said, let us make man in our image. So we're image bearers. And he says, let us make them male and female. So there's two, two genders, and we're image bearers. But we're two totally different people. My wife uses more words than are necessary. Uh, I don't even have to speak to another man. We grunt. We understand what each other's saying. And yet we, we come together. We raise a family, five kids, five grandkids, uh, 33 years of marriage. And, and to, you know, to celebrate a birthday, you have to stay alive. But to celebrate, celebrate an anniversary, you got to stop from killing each other. And, and, and the, the idea is you have, to, you have to come through compromise and work things out. And, and that's, that's the idea of politics. I, um, I w if you don't mind, I'd like to add one more thing. Please. All right. So when Jesus was trying to, he, they tried to trip him up with an attorney. Um, and they said, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like it. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments, hang all the law of the prophets. Now, how do you love your neighbor? I loved my neighbor when I kept our church open. I, I loved my neighbor when I contended with the tyrannical um, medical apartheid that they placed upon our citizenry. And, and other pastors think that peace is the absence of conflict. They're very confused. Peace isn't the absence of conflict. Peace is the presence of Christ in the midst of the conflict. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword, the word of God. We're contending for truth. Get in the public square and contend for the welfare of your neighbor. You know, they're, they're giving them chemical castration in California, uh, and, and they don't even need parents' permission at this point. And, and these are drugs that we won't even use on serial pedophiles in prison, but we'll give them to our kids who are confused, and, and, and somehow we're going to put this forward. It, 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 where's the church in all of this? We don't do politics? Really? Roe v. Wade is overturned, and, and nobody says a thing. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm stunned by it. We, we, California leads the nation in abortion. We, 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 abortion was legal in California long before 73. Uh, it's, it's been estimated we've aborted more children in California than the current population of Canada. And, and we, don't, we don't just rip the baby apart in the womb of the mother and flush the parts into the sewer system. We harvest the organs first. We make the Nazis look like Girl Scouts. But the church shouldn't get involved in that. God, for no, no, don't do that. So you can see I'm a little passionate about it. You are. I'm glad I got you on. Last night I was in a discussion, not going to say the name, but someone was asking me to participate in a political commercial. And, and I said to them, and Rob, I'm about to uh, 
tell you some more stuff that makes me look bad, but it's just the truth. I said to them, I said, hey, man, I don't vote. I've I've never voted. I I don't vote. I I think I may vote in 2024, but I go, I believe in the power of the gospel and the word and Christianity applied properly. I said, so it, it would probably be tough for me and, and the brand I've built and just my approach to life to be in some type of political commercial endorsing some candidate. I said, I believe in teaching people the values and the worldview uh, presented in the Bible. And I said, if I can get them to, to, to do that, they'll start voting the way that you say you want them to vote. I say, but if we don't change their worldview and give them a biblical worldview, uh, they're not going to vote. They're going to continue to support politicians who support abortion and all, you know, who support transgenderism and all this other stuff. And so it's I have purposely stayed out of politics somewhat as a journalist. Part of it as just a personality quirk. I don't like people that don't do what they say they're going to do. But what would you have if you were in that conversation with me last night and I was unpacking? Look, I'm going to give people a biblical worldview and hopefully that fixes or aligns their politics with God. What would you have said to me last night uh, when I was, you know, telling this guy like, nah, not going to do a political commercial? Yeah. Well, you know, Jason, to each is given a measure of faith. Um, Yours is at a place where you don't see the value of contending in the ecclesia, and and I I get that it's it's a lot it's a lot more simple, um, and even the word gospel ulangelian, which means good news, um, the you know. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna go back a little bit to the first constitutional republic to help. Uh, it wasn't the United States of America; it was Israel. Three to five million Jews were enslaved in Egypt, crying out to God for deliverance. They worked all day by the sweat of their brow and got nothing for their labors. And God sends an 80-year-old man by the name of Moses to contend with Pharaoh. And, and he says to Pharaoh, let my, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who is God that I should obey him? Because all tyrants don't want man to know that they have inalienable rights or who they are. They want to suppress that truth. That's why they didn't let slaves read the Bible or learn how to read in the South. And so Moses contends with Pharaoh and then Pharaoh doubles the brick output of the slaves and reduces the materials. And what do the three to five million people who were crying out for freedom do? They want to kill Moses. People love the benefits of freedom. They just don't want to work for it. And, and politicians are actors performing a script written by the audience. You're, you're just not in the audience. That's all. You, you just, you just, you're, and, and I, I have to commend you for the journalist side. I don't find fault with that. You're going to have an opinion, but you're doing your best to walk that line and to report on it. That that's okay with me. But to say it's just a quirk, uh, you know, side, I, I, I hold to the journalism side, the, the quirk thing, we could talk through that. But here we go. 
Moses still contends with Pharaoh, does the 10, 10 plagues. Pharaoh relents, lets the three to five million slaves go, ruins his slave economy, realizes it, sends his army after him to get him and bring him back. God drowns them in the Red Sea. And these three to five million people are now in the desert. And God provides food every morning called manna, water where there isn't when he speaks to a rock or strikes a rock, it pours out, quail are blown off course till meat comes out of their nose. And there's miracle after miracle. Their clothes don't wear out for 40 years, neither do their shoes. I mean, those are miracles. But the greatest miracle of all is that Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he gets a downloaded moral app called the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And you talk about a Christian worldview. I'm not going to make fun of you. But if I were to ask you right now to just a simple recitation of the Ten Commandments in order, or even give me five of them, it would be probably hard for you. Most people don't know there's seven articles of the Constitution. They don't know that there's 27 amendments. They don't know that there's one God, no idols, uh, uh, Sabbath day, or excuse me, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, the Sabbath day, keep it. And then the five is honor your mother and father. Six is don't murder. Seven is don't commit adultery. Eight is don't steal. Nine is don't bear false witness. And 10 is don't covet. Why do I memorize that? Because when Moses came down with the moral law, these three to five million people were in a rave party, basically. They had a golden calf and they were worshiping all of the false idols of Egypt. And Moses then puts, educates the children on the moral law and then places it in the center of the community. And here's the greatest miracle. Three to five million people lived together for 40 years without a police force or a standing army because they had the moral law. You want to talk about politics and civil law? Civil law without the moral law is, is the leaven of, the leaven of Herod, the, the leaven of, of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. It's attempting to legislate civil law apart from God's moral law. From the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments should come every decision in life you make if you are projecting a Christian worldview. And if you're going to establish a civil law apart from the moral law, what you're doing is you're weaponizing it to enslave people because that has nothing to do with the, the moral law God has given. So in, in Harvard Law School in the stairwell, there's a plaque that commemorates a 1917, 1915 commencement speech that's invoked every year. And it simply says this, the law is the wise restraints that make men free. You say, how do restraints make you free? Well, you apply, any athlete understands this, and you know this, when all their buddies are out partying on, on Friday night, they're, they're in bed early because they've got practice in the morning. You don't stand on the victory block if you don't apply restraints. You've got to discipline and buffet your body to get to that place. And that's what the moral law does. It restrains us so that we can pursue excellence. And, and, and when we pursue excellence, society is benefited. But we're talking about a moral law and and pastors nowadays, they can't recite the Ten Commandments. And secondly, they think that the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law, are there just to show us that we can't keep the law and that's the only purpose of the law. So that we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The law is necessary. Galatians 3 says the law is a school teacher to point us to Christ until faith comes. So... um, to say that you're not in politics 
everyone's in politics. Uh, he who James says, he who knows the good to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. As a matter of fact, in uh, Deuteronomy uh, 20, I believe it is, if a woman is betrothed to a man and her father says nothing, he gives consent by his silence. It, it's, it's this idea of, of uh, silence in the face of evil is complicit with evil itself. You're giving consent to it. I, I, just, I just don't do it. I don't, I don't, I don't get into that. First of all, Rob, I'm way comfortable with being criticized. And so you don't have to I bite hope, your tongue. Uh, no, I and, did and, criticize and, you if that makes you feel better. But I yeah. was I was affirming the journalism <laughs> aspect. I got you. But I just want you to be perfectly comfortable. I am the crash test dummy of this show. I, I right. represent the, the people that need to be disciplined, need to be taught. And I, I, I'm just on a journey seeking truth and I will listen and talk to anyone. And I, what you, the stuff you're saying, I find fascinating. I'm glad you're saying it. I do, you know, there, there's things about me and about this show. I am in the public square. I am in the fight. I'm just choosing to fight a little differently. You know, I, I could show you the scars on my back. I'm in the fight. Uh, I know you and I'm in the public square. I just personally, haven't been compelled to vote. Uh, and, and again, I do, anybody that watches the show, you'll figure out who I support and, and what I think people should do. But for, for me, I just, you know, I'm a Trump guy. I like Trump, but you know, there's parts of Trump that, you know, bother me. And, and yeah. I'm probably gonna vote for him in 2024. It'll be the first time I've ever voted. Uh, because he is someone that does attempt to do what he says he's going to do. The rest of them, I, I just don't trust. Uh, but, you know, I find what you and Charlie have done through TPUSA, I find it amazing. And Charlie was on the show last week talking about how by talking politics, he's bringing people to faith. And part yeah. of what I do on this show, because of my sports background, we talk about sports. I give you a biblical take on sports. I give you a biblical take on the culture and all that. I'm trying to bring you to God by talking to you on the level that you're comfortable with or the audience is comfortable with. But la last thing, because I think some people, I want to ask this question. Some right. people will hear you and will say that TPUSA and Charlie Kirk, they're Christian nationalists. I'm someone personally, I believe in Christian nationalism and I don't consider that an insult uh, and I don't yeah, consider that a negative thing. Where do you come down on the whole Christian nationalism debate? Well, uh, so, so they're saying that I love my nation more than Christ or equally with Christ. Um, and I would, I would simply state that I am a I'm a Christian husband. You can love two things at the same time and still be in the will of God. You can love your country. Now, I, I love my country because it represents 4% of the world's population, yet it's had more more patents, more Nobel Peace Prize winners, more symphonies, um, greatest accumulation of wealth, more freedom. You ride in an elevator, it was invented by an American. You fly in an airplane, it was invented by an American. You enjoy air conditioning, it was invented by an American. You enjoy the internet, it was invented by an American, not Al Gore. And, and all of these are because 
you know, America's had liberty and freedom. And, and people say, no, it's because of the land mass. Well, and its resources. Canada far exceeds us in that. South America and, and, and oil reserves. Yeah, we've got it. But the reality is our people were, were listed in the first three words of the preamble of the Constitution. This was a remarkable document that changed the world forever. All prior governments had been oligarchies, the few ruling the many. And they began with, we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union. And, and, and it goes on to say, establish justice, promote domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, do, do ordain and establish. But they also say to secure liberty for ourselves and our posterity. Talk about loving your neighbor and making the, the, the citizen the sovereign of the country. And then they give the seven articles to constrain all government uh, officials and, and employees. You're bound by those seven articles. You will not usurp the authority of the sovereign in this nation, which is the people. And then the only branch of government we were permitted to elect was the lower house of the bicameral legislature, the Congress. Congress then appointed the senators and then the electoral college appointed the president, voted for the president. The only branch that the people were allowed to elect was the lower house. But here's the thing, the lower house controlled the purse strings, the money. They had all the power. And the larger the state, the more representatives they had. Smaller states, smaller representation, but you had to get along and you had to work through it. And that's why after they created this remarkable government that I love, and I am a nationalist, but I am a Christian first, but why I'm a nationalist for America is because they searched history and all of the ancient documents. They did look at Israel, the number one source quoted by all the founding fathers, and they can make up their 1619 project history, which is they're just pulling it out of thin air. I'm talking about documented original source data. The number one quoted uh, source was the Bible, period. And it far exceeds everything else, Blackstone, everyone else. So they, they give, they, they give the, the people the sovereignty. We vote for the House. And then they realize we've got to constrain the House. So the very first amendment, the first 16 words, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. No government, including you, Congress, gets in the way of man worshiping God ever, period. Now, we know that uh, that all changed and... Uh, Hugo Black, who was a self-professing KKK member, he's the one that made all the internment camps for the Japanese in World War II. He had never been a judge before, but he had helped uh, FDR on the New Deal. So he appointed him to the Supreme Court. And he is the one who gave us the Establishment Clause and reversed 150 years of precedent by saying it's not freedom of religion. It's freedom from religion. Now you have to take every vestige of Christianity, the Ten Commandments on the screen, take them all down. And what they gave us is secularism. It's a religion. It's a religion without God. But our founders didn't want that. The only reason we lost it, the only reason why we lost it, 
All the stuff I'm spouting at 58 years of age, most of it I was taught in civics. You look a lot younger than me, I doubt you got that class. Because they've, they've taken it out. They don't teach it anymore. And when you don't know your history, you, they, they're going to write your future. You're, you're just a puppet. And, and that's you, when you forgot who you are, you're Americans. The, the, we, we have kept the sea lanes open. We're the only nation in the, in the history of the world that gives up its blood and treasure and asks for nothing in return. We're not occupiers. We're liberators. Not, not of this administration, sadly, but that, that's and, – and look, America's faults are many, but her faults are universal. Her successes are unique. You, you think about slave owners creating a sunset clause, and they say the three-fifths compromise was reducing the value of a, of, of a, of a black man. And it, No, it wasn't. It was a compromise with the northern states saying you, you can't count representation for a congressional seat when you don't even allow them to vote and yet count them as a citizen of your of your community, we, we've got, cause we, we have a sunset clause and it was in the Northwest ordinance and they wanted to do away with slavery. They had the greatest nation that just defeated the second greatest nation bearing down on them. They could barely hold the 13 together and, and they, they fought for it. I love this nation. It, they, the things that we've accomplished and have done and, and the freedoms we've experienced and the lives that we've touched only in America. Last, last thing. Go ahead. You, you double all of Western Europe's gen- generosity. It doesn't even equal the United States. Um, 80, oh, over 80 cents in every dollar in evangelism comes from the United States of America. We're the most giving nation on the face of the earth. We're losing that. Less people are going to church. When you go to church, you give. When you don't, you, you tend to be very stingy. Rob, thank you so much. And, and uh, I would ask you to get your eyes checked. Uh, I'm, I'm just two years younger than you. Uh, <laughs> well, you, you, you preserve what? What do you do? That, take formaldehyde baths? Do you take formaldehyde baths? Yeah. I wish. <laughs> it's double filet of fish sandwiches from McDonald's have kept me young uh, <laughs> and fat. Uh, <laughs> but uh, hey, man, I can't wait to meet you. Uh, I'm sure we'll cross paths. I think I'm coming out to San Diego for Charlie. Uh, oh, that'd be great. Yeah. Phoenix somewhere. Well, so, uh, San Diego's uh, anyway, in September. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome job. Appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. Uh, that's Rob McCoy. That was fascinating. Dave Shannon's been listening and watching. I'm going to ask Dave Shannon Chocolate Knox to interpret uh, what Rob McCoy just unpacked next. Let's roll out to Idaho and bring in the Idaho potato, Chalk Knox, Dave Shannon. 
Dave, you just listened to my exchange with uh, Rob McCoy. I thought it was fascinating, mesmerizing. I wish Virgil and Anthony were here. Uh, but I'm glad you're here because, uh, one, I think you'll probably give a little different take uh, than Virgil and Anthony. We'll hear from them either next week or later this week. But uh, not next week. We're going to be off next week. Um, Surprise, surprise. Uh, but anyway, Dave, uh, your thoughts on what Rob McCoy unpacked? Oh, man, there's so much to say, Jason. I first want to say this. Uh, Rob McCoy, he brought this up a little bit in this conversation, but I got a lot of respect for that man. A lot of people don't know this. He was one of the few pastors in California who got it right from the beginning, way before John MacArthur had to change his mind on Romans 13 during the pandemic, Rob McCoy, he kept having church. He didn't shut down. He was working with the city council. He actually, I think he quit the city council or got fired. I thought he he walked away so that there wouldn't be certain pressures on them to try and protect him. But he was fighting against the shutdowns way before anybody else was on board. So I know Rob. I've talked to him before. Um, I know people who go to his church. And so I got a lot of respect for him and his stance. So uh, Mark, for the most part, I agree with almost everything that Rob said. There's just one thing you ever, you know, you're a writer, Jason. So when you see other new writers, not saying Rob's new in anything, but when you see other writers and they have their, their sentences and you're like, oh, this is really good. I just want to put this piece here and take that piece out there and fix it and make it all better. That's kind of what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do it right at the beginning of the whole conversation that sparked even to have him on the show, which was when he was talking about Ecclesia. I want to say, He's right about the actual interpretation of the word, but the the problem is, is he's flipped the metaphor of the interpretation. There is a called out ones. That is real. It really is a square. It really is an environment. It is a government, but it's a private one. When Jesus said on this rock, I will build my square, public square, um, he's actually saying, I will build my government, right? And this government is a real institution. It's a real government here on earth that is not a civil government. It's separate than that. It's a different space that has real authority and real power. So I don't think Rob McCoy is wrong on his understanding of Christians in government and God's authority over government. I would have just used Matthew 28 when he says, when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, go and make disciples. Jesus claiming authority not just over one area or one institution, but over all institutions. And what he's doing in Matthew 16, he's establishing the real authority of the church's institution, the private civil, right? And so I just, there's a real distinction that I want to make because the church really is a real government. It's a real authority. We don't just have one government in America or the world. We have four real functioning authorities according to scripture. Self-government, the civil government, church government, and the family government. Those are real functioning governments and not all of them. So they're all, you could say, four squares, right? But they're not all just wrapped into one. So all the authority isn't in one government. They have checks and balances between each other. And so everything that he was saying about politics and Christians engaged in politics, the, the, you got to remember politics is religion externalized. And what we're seeing when we see in politics is the cult that's driving the culture. And so the religion now has flipped over. And that's why everybody's mad. 
We all understand that Christianity used to be the cult that drove the culture. Our politics were Christian. Our politics, regardless of what was going on and how much we were fighting, we all understood that God was the authority of the world. And we were just trying to figure out how to establish that reality because the church was a real government that was driving the cultural conversation of morality. But somehow something flipped. And like Pastor Rob said in the original clip, I I disagree with him on the 50 years. We missed it 150 years ago. Christians should have been screaming, hang the first slave owner. (laughs) So we make this dot the end and nobody else wants to do it. So we've abdicated that responsibility in the civil public square because this government over here didn't do its job. Now we have a whole new government of religion inside of our politics. And that's why it's so messy. And so he's right. Yeah, politics is messy, but so are diapers. That's why you change them out and get involved. You don't let your baby run around with a stinky diaper on. We shouldn't let America run around with stinky politicians. I listened to you unpack that. And the first thought that ran through my mind is the Catholic Church that Mm. to me operates as its own government. And, and I know there's a lot of help, help. Am I wrong for thinking that 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 literally and, and I look at how the Catholic Church has been diminished, smeared, uh, demoralized in the public square and it, it exercises less power. And, you know, they they have weak popes now and things like that. But. That I, I listen to what it, it, it to me it's not, that's what the Catholic Church has been about establishing its own religious government for Christ. No, let me explain myself better then if that's what you're getting out from me. <laughs> that's not at all what I'm trying to I'm, communicate. I'm just telling you what crossed my mind. I don't think that's what you were arguing. I'm just telling you, it made me go, huh. Another thing the Catholics may be doing right is what I was thinking. Well, I think the part, unfortunately, the way that America is going is more like the Catholic Church where everything's wrapped into one real authority. That's not what I'm saying at all, because I want four governments, not one government. Right. I don't want the my pastor also being the president. I don't want my deacon also being my governor. Right. I don't want I want those separate authorities and separate powers. I actually want a real self-government. I want a, a family government, right? I want the family to be able to say, we're in control of health, welfare, and and drugs and all those things. And so we make real decisions about what's going to happen here. I want the civil magistrate to be con- confirmed con- in control of the death penalty so that they are the ones who execute justice and they, they force uh, restitution, right? So there's a separation of powers and what they do, and they aren't all driven into one area so that there's authority just in that one place. I really want separate entities, what I call overlapping covenants, right? So these overlapping covenants figure out a way to communicate with each other in their real authorities without taking over their authority. So you have more like a starfish reality instead of a spider, where a spider has one head, one brain, and it has legs that do everything it wants to do. Or with a starfish, it's overlapping covenants where it's not one brain. It's multiple different uh, brains working together under covenant with each other to convince each other this is the right thing to do, right? And so covenants are the way that we establish that type of real government with those four governments operating and not just one head who decides everything. 
What did you think of Rob McCoy's answer about Christian nationalism? I loved it. Do you like it or do you love it? <laughs> Why do you do this to me? I told you, Jason, I'm a Christian intergalacticus. I think that Christian nationalism isn't big enough. Okay. Um, I, I have a problem with Christian nationalism, not because of the ideas that they have necessarily or their worldview, but I think words matter. And Christian is great, but for the most part, if you look historically, Christian nationalism or nationalism itself has happened when Christianity has died out. And so what you need is you have to have an identity marker stronger than Christianity. Christianity itself is um, is enough of an identity marker. It marks you, your primary identity. Nationalism overlaps to make another identity that might be stronger than your Christianity. And so I, I think that if we look historically, what we've done is we've taken um, what we mean by nation and what we mean by people and group and called it nationalism, when I don't think that's what we're really after. Nationalism itself has a tendency, uh, what if I said, I'm a Christian critical race theorist? You would say, well, I, I, your crit critical race theory might be getting inside of your Christianity and messing some things up. And I think we need to be mindful that nationalism has the ability to erode some of the Christianity if we're not careful. Words mean things. And if nationalism has any effect on our Christianity, we need to be concerned about that. And I'm a person who is very much wanting a Christian nation. I'm a theonomist. I want God's law to rule all of America. I want, so I'm absolutely for a Christian nation, a nation that seeks after God, has God's laws, and rewards good and punishes evil. But what I don't want to do is make the nation's identity our primary identity. I'm a father. I am a husband. I am a Christian above all of those. And I'm an American. I'm also an Idahoan, potato, according to you. And so I have overlapping covenants that are connected, and it's not just one. I love my original home, Minneapolis. It's my people, right? Uh, and so I'm not just one thing. I'm multiple things. And those covenants overlap and work in unity with each other that are underneath the Christian God. Uh, Dave, you were on our Twitter spaces uh, last night and did a good job. Uh, did I? What did you think? <laughs> I don't feel that way after you lit me up today. <laughs> <laughs> my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I hope no one takes it uh, personal, but I did. I just gave it a lot of thought. And and anyway, I did want your reaction to uh, my the open of today's show. My, my reaction to thinking about all of yesterday's conversation. Well, first, after I got done anointing my head from having burn sores all over the place from you blowing a fire, um, Jason, I don't think that you were wrong to see. First of all, let me say, I think there is a harmony between what you said and what I think I wanted to communicate. I can't speak for everybody else. I was shocked that you were standing kind of alone by yourself. I expected a way bigger fight to argue for the original Juneteenth. I thought, man, everybody's a completely opposite of Jason on this one. That was really shocking to me. So I, I was taken back by that. But I don't think that what you said this morning and what I wanted to communicate are at odds. I think that Juneteenth is a perfect microcosm explanation of America in one way or another. We really have broken the fifth commandment. A lot of our failings right now in America 
is not honoring our father and mother. Like you talked about Memorial Day. I love that. That is a beautiful tradition that was been handed down to us from our forefathers to commemorate something that God has done to free us. I I think that's beautiful. What I don't like is that the federal government comes in and running like it's their parade. We did that. That is ours. We're the one who decided to have the celebration and they don't get to give us permission to have it. It was ours before they gave it to us. And so part of it for me is just remembering that this goes back to the the, the governments again. We actually have our own ability to make our own calendars that we can rejoice in, right? We, my wife and I's anniversary is the New Year's of our family, right? That's our calendar. So the family calendar, our, our wedding is the New Year of the, of the Shannon family. We get to celebrate that. We can have that and enjoy it. And you can look from afar and say, hey, I'm happy for them, right? That's a really good thing. What becomes horrible is what happens when the civil magistrate, particularly the, the federal government, says, hey, let's take the Shannon anniversary and make it a national holiday and make everybody else have to celebrate it and use it to bring in idolatry and witchcraft. Now we have a problem, right? Because what they've done is taken something that's good and beautiful and should be ab- absorbed, and they've made everybody have a faction about it. Why do I got to celebrate David and Sharon's wedding? I wasn't there. I don't even know those people. And, and But that's their whole goal. And then there's another group of people, let's just say generations down the line from us, that let's say we didn't raise our children right, that are twerking, smoking weed, and shooting everybody on our anniversary, because the federal government made it a national holiday and we didn't raise our kids right. Well, <laughs> in a situation like that, that needs to be recovered, what we need to do is remember the original intent, repent ourselves and start. This is why I loved with the lady who asked the question about like, what are you doing to change the world, to change it, the, whatever it was. And you, you came back and said, well, I'm working on Jason. And I tried to jump in there in that moment and I couldn't because of whatever Twitter did. And I thought that was so right because what G.K. Chester said was, when I look at the world and I ask the question, what's wrong with it? I have to say, it's me. I'm what's wrong with the world. And if we aren't working first on an individual level to repent of our own sins, love our wives, like you were saying, raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and train them about what God has blessed them and taken them from whatever local environment we are and teach them not to let the government take things from them and, and use them as weapons, then all of this stuff starts to fade out over time and generations, right? But we don't get this kind of blessing that we want overnight. And so the answer to, to kind of, I want to bring what you said today and what I wanted to say last night together and say, we can have both of these. We can have our cake and eat it too. If we do what you were talking about when you were asking the, answering the lady's question about, well, what, what is our legacy? What are we going to do to change the world? And what are we going to leave? Yeah. Well, I'm working on being faithful to my wife because obviously when you look at the outcome on the streets, they ain't been no faithful husbands and they ain't been no faithful daddies and there ain't been no faithful families. So that's really the problem at the end of the day, because these people are so needy and, and so wanting that the federal government can offer them peasants of like a, a coin or food or bread. And they'll just jump on it because they don't even know their own value. And so I just thought there was like, I want to bring those two things together because I didn't disagree with your point whatsoever. I just don't want to let them take something that I think was originally intended to be good. 
Well, I do think in Texas it was intended to be good. Making it a national holiday, I don't think there was any good intention to it I at agree. all. And, and, and I look at the results as evidence of that because it is a polarizing uh, holiday that most people, regardless of color, don't know what it's about. And I don't, it, it's not provoking people uh, to any deeper level of understanding of anything the way it's been unpacked, and particularly riding in on the horseback of George Floyd, is, hey, this is why you should be mad at America and at white people. And I just, that type of messaging doesn't produce good results because we should be thinking, having holidays and reminding ourselves like, look at how good God has been to us. Yes. This is yeah. amazing. Yes. And, and, and instead, and we know for a fact, and we can all go off into fantasy land world where, well, I know a family that does celebrate it the right way. But overwhelmingly, it, it, it's twerk shows, it's in your face, uh, you know, anger or, or bitterness towards America or your plight and feeling sorry for yourself when you got nothing to feel sorry for. Whatever your problems are, you did it to yourself. Uh, I certainly did it to me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, you, you know, anyway, Jason, I, I'll give you a final I, thought and then we'll get out of here, Dave. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've looked at the 4th of July during COVID and thought somewhat of the same thing, you know, um, and actually just the COVID moment itself. When you when you look at the 4th of July, we have laws on the book that don't let us pop fireworks. This is America. What do you mean I can't throw no fireworks up in the sky? Well, it's all for safety. It's all for, and it's like, but that's not the whole intent is that we are showing our freedom and that's telling you, you can't be free. So Juneteenth ain't the only thing that's been taken advantage of and hijacked. <laughs> Memorial Day, people hardly even know what that is. They didn't even know that black people were the ones who started it. There's a lot of things that we have, again, broken the fifth commandment because we haven't remembered our forefathers and taken and obeyed them and, and forgotten about the blessing that God has given to them. And that's why I mean it's a microcosm because it's just the one that's probably had the worst amount <laughs> of forgetfulness to it, but it's all over there. And if the government can get us to nitpick at each other overall, if I offered you to come to my anniversary and I was like, it's going to be a great party, you'd be like, let's go. If the government made you, be like, why? Why? You know. And so I think there's a difference in, again, overlapping covenants in government, without the federal government allows us to have unity without being forced. Thank you, Dave. Great job. Play some harmony. We'll see you tomorrow. up so divided stop fighting and stand tall we used to be a nation one united now we're headed for downfall gotta let your light shine down what we need more than anything
my sister, my brother See through the lies they tell us Cause together we're so much stronger God, let your light shine down Get to me Open up your eyes and see 